Welcome to How Do You Write? I'm your host, Rachel Heron. On this podcast, I talk to authors about how they write, what their process is, and how their lives fit together. I'll keep each episode short so you can get back to writing. Well, hello, writer. Welcome to episode number 402 of How Do You Write? I'm Rachel Heron, and I am absolutely positively thrilled that you are here with me today as I am talking to Eve O'Shab. Eve, can I call her a friend? I want to call her a friend. I think I will. I do. I adore her. I adore her books. I adore everything she does. And her newest book, Year of No Garbage, just blew my mind. Um, In this interview, we talk about how stunt memoirs can actually change the world. And I just have to say that by reading Year of No Garbage, where she takes a year and lives without garbage, she goes zero waste with her family. It has changed a lot of things for me in an awesome way. I am, (laughs) it won't make you do it. It won't necessarily make you do it, but maybe it will. I'm now recycling plastic in ways that actually make sense, not the ridiculous ways that don't make sense because plastic is mostly or all non-recyclable. So what do we actually do with plastics that we purchase? What can we do with them reasonably? I am now composting using a uh, compost system called Bokashi, and I'm absolutely obsessed with it. Uh, In New Zealand, or at least in Wellington, we can't put food scraps into the compost system. You can pay to have your green waste from the yard collected, but not um, home compost. So that's really been bothering me since we moved here because food waste, they say, is 40 to 50% of the trash that we send to the landfill. So now we're not doing it. And it is wild, y'all. Since I went back to home composting, hard to say, like we used to do in the States, now we just have a little wee bag of trash to go to the landfill every week or every other week. It is, it's just making me feel good, but it's also making me think about things like legislation and how small things that an individual can do can't really do much to save the climate, but we can contribute to the system needing to support us and our decisions. So anyway, uh, I'm convinced I'm a convert and I'm loving it. And this conversation with Eve was fantastic. So please stick around for it. I am always just delighted to talk to her. So in this episode that is coming to you from the past, I will continue talking about the feelings that writers in my survey reported keep them from the page. And here is a big one. Today, we're going to talk about perfectionism. Perfectionism and the self-criticism that comes with perfectionism keeps so many of us from doing our writing. What happens so often is we sit down to write, we write something it is not perfect. Hmm. And that makes us feel bad. And that feeling bad drives us away from the page. And it is then hard to go back to the page. We spend so much of our lives needing to get most things really, really perfect. We do not try to walk down a sidewalk and trip over the crack in it. As we are driving, we are really aiming for perfection when it comes to not hitting anything at all. We strive for perfection in the way that we treat each other and ourselves, right? But when it comes to writing, we can't be perfect. 
we can't even try to be perfect. And that is so hard for most of us who are perfectionists. And I got to say, most writers I meet are perfectionists. So what does that mean? When we are striving for perfection in our work, in the background, the background music of that is we are comparing ourselves negatively to what we think other people will think about what we have just written. And we will never live up to that. There is actually no perfection. There's no subjective perfection for a piece of art. And what we are doing as writers is we are creating art. So it's absolutely not fair of us to try for perfection, to even aim for it. But what does that actually look like in the real world? It's nice to say that we don't want to be a perfectionist, but how do we do it? Um, Here is how I have done it over the years, how I have been practicing and doing, and it works now, is I lower my expectations. And I say that frequently. What does it mean? I try to write badly. This is something I used to practice when I would sit down and I would notice myself getting tight around my words that they just weren't good enough. I would force myself to take a deep breath and then try to write crappy sentences, actually trying to. And what do I mean by crappy sentences? I mean, leaving the subject out because I haven't thought of the perfect word yet. I just leave an X where the subject of the sentence might be. And if I would like a verb, maybe I put a verb all in caps. Everything in all in caps to me means later, you know, think of a better word. I stop sentences in the middle. I connect sentences that should not be connected to each other. I almost challenge my, I know it's not almost, I do challenge myself to write terribly. And what that does is it kind of frees up my creative brain to say, oh, it's safe here. I can't get this wrong. If I'm trying to get it wrong, I'm not going to let down this writer who's inside this brain doing this work. And it sounds dumb. It sounds like a waste of time. And it is not. It is how I get my fingers moving and how we get to the next thoughts that we need to have, the next decisions that we need to make, uh, the next epiphanies that we need and want to have is by doing substandard work that we will then fix later. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, you may have heard about this, but maximizers and satisfizers, satisficers, uh, this is a term coined by Barry Schwartz, who is a professor emeritus of psychology at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania, who writes extensively about maximizers and satisficers. In life, he says, I'm going to grossly generalize this. Um, There are maximizers who think very carefully about everything and weigh up all the pros and cons. And then after a lot of thought, choose what they think is the best option. And then there are satisficers who think until they're satisfied and then take the action, do the thing. He has proven that satisficers are happier. Maximizers, aka perfectionists who always want to do everything exactly the right way, are always worried that another choice might be better. So they want to think about it longer and they do less and make fewer decisions that move them toward where they want to be. Um, I was listening to him on a podcast recently, and I can't remember which one it is, but if you search for Barry Schwartz, he will come up. He's on many podcasts. Um, And he was talking about the decision that we make 
when buying a phone. A maximizer will look at all of the different cell phones and spend a, a good amount of time comparing all the options. You know, this one has this one, but this one has that one. Should I get this one? Would having that feature over this feature make a difference? But as Dr. Schwartz points out, phones are just phones nowadays. They're all pretty good unless you want to absolutely maximize for a photographic, uh, a photography lens that really works well, then pick one of those. But otherwise, you know that if you're going to spend this uh, approximately this amount of money, you're going to get approximately this amount. And spending a lot of time making the perfect decision will not make you happier. And in fact, it can decrease your happiness. And in writing, we cannot make the right decisions. We, there are too many of them. There are no right decisions. There are only decisions that we make. And then in writing forward, we make the decision right. There's the great Hank Green 80% video that I talk about a lot that he he points out that he spends all of his time trying to get his work to about 80% and then he stops. He pushes it off his desk and out into the world because trying to take it to 100 would double, triple, quadruple the time that he spends on it. And there is no 100%. There is no perfect. He will never be able to get it there. And it is subjective. So if he works continually and does more and more work, he is naturally getting better and better at what he does. So his 80% is actually going up the more he works. It's getting better and better. And then he can move on to the next project. That is the ultimate in satisficing, making a decision that is satisfactory enough. And for dyed in the wool, inveterate type A, perfectionists like me, and perhaps like you, the only way we can do that is to practice getting comfortable with doing shoddy work that then we can fix later. We can fix, we can go in and edit. That's what revision is for, but we must practice leaving crappy, scrappy first draft words behind us on the page that don't make much sense and don't link things correctly and continuing to move forward because that's where the revelations will come. And that's how we finish books. If you're a perfectionist and, you're not, and you are not finishing books, you have to get out of your own way. You have to practice a fast first draft, not, or not even necessarily fast, but a draft that is faster than you normally do because you are not stopping to fix things along the way. You will fix them later after you've had the really big revelations about this book that can only come by doing the work and by moving forward, not by fixing work that which may not even deserve to be fixed because it's not going to stay in the book. So if I can encourage you to do one thing, write something super crappy this week. Honestly, practice on it. Write something terrible and then get up and walk away from the page and notice that you survive and you did some work. Good job. Tomorrow, do a little bit more crappy work. It actually helps. If you want to see an example of a crappy first draft, you can go to rachelheron.com slash SFD, S as in Sam, F as in Frank, D as in dog, and look at an example of what some of my crappy first drafts really do look like. Uh, so you can check that out. Also, what you can check out is 90 Days to Done or 90 Day Revision. They may still have a slot or two. I am absolutely not sure if they do, but if you go to rachelheron.com slash 90 days to done or rachelheron.com slash 90 day, no, I'm sorry, 
rachelheron.com slash revision, or just go to rachelheron.com and poke around until you find the classes. They will say if they're open. If it says it's open, there is a spot for you and you should grab it. If it says it's closed, but you are interested in taking this the next time I offer it, do put yourself on the sign up list, which will be attached there because I always let those people know 24 hours in advance of anybody else. So that's how people get into these classes. I would love to have you. It is truly the honor of my life to take people through writing their books. You have heard me talk about that, um, but I am going to play a little bit of a testimonial here coming up. And there is also one that I want to read to you from a person who didn't put it on the audio. Um, But I, Kristen, uh, Kristen S has left me this one. Kristen says, I'm a bona fide writing class junkie. She is I know this for sure. I know this for sure. Uh, but Rachel Heron's classes stand head and shoulders above the rest. Rachel manages to be all things at once: the best writing coach you'll ever have, an ace editor, a writing craft guru, an expert on how the book market works, and an unabashed cheerleader of each person's work. She creates a group environment where any question can be asked, and everyone plays a role in supporting each other. I'm not exaggerating when I say that I might have given up my writing if I hadn't found Rachel's classes. Whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, short form or long form, planning to go after an agent or self-publish, you've found the right person to lead you through the process. That's from Kristen S. And I feel weird about reading that. Oh boy. But thank you, Kristen. Really appreciate it. Okay, Uh, let's get into the interview right after this um, testimonial, but I wanna give you Eve's bio. Uh, Eve Oshab is an internationally published author and humorist, the author of Year of No Sugar and Year of No Clutter. Oh, one of my favorite books. Her third family memoir is Year of No Garbage. She's been featured on the Dr. Oz show, Fox and Friends, USA Today, and the Huffington Post, among others. Her essay, Our Year of No Sugar, One Family's Grand Adventure for Everyday Health, has been viewed over a million times. Her books have been translated into Chinese, Hebrew, and Spanish, and her writing has appeared in Newsweek, the Boston Globe, Bustle, the Belladonna Comedy, Vermont Magazine, and Vermont Life. She holds a BA and BFA from Cornell University and an MFA from Rochester Institute of Technology. She lives with her family in Vermont and enjoys performing experiments on them so she can write about it. Here's the interview. Happy writing to you, my friends. We will talk soon. Hi, this is Sandy Miranda. It was my life dream to write a book. And thanks to Rachel Heron, I did it. And she helped me every step of the way. She is the most loving and generous teacher I've ever had. And if you get a chance to be in one of her classes, don't hesitate. It's amazing. What a wonderful experience I had with her. Thank you, Rachel. Well, I am so pleased to have you back on the show. Will you please share your name and your pronouns with us? My name is Eve Schaub and my pronouns are she, her. Thank you so much for being back on the show. We were just trying to figure it out. It's got to be at least five or six years. And the last time you were on the show, I believe we were talking about uh, my year of no clutter. I, why have I just, yeah. That was and it. that book just rocked my world. You are such an amazing writer. I love reading your books because you do the things that I'm too scared to do. And you write about them so well and so deeply and with so much truth. Can you talk to us a little bit about your newest memoir, which came out about six months ago? 
I would be delighted to tell you about my newest memoir. It is the third and final book in the series Year of No. So I began with Year of No Sugar. Year of No Clutter was the middle book. And the most recent and final book in the series is Year of No Garbage. And I really feel like I've come full circle now. I've looked at the things that we put in our bodies. I've looked at the things we bring into our homes. And now I'm looking at the stuff that we're putting into the environment. And the stuff we're putting into the environment is eventually going to find its way back into our bodies. So it all makes sense somehow to me. (laughs) Was this intentional that you were going to write a series of three books or did it just kind of happen that way? When did you when did you know that that was going to be how you did it? Um, it, it happened along the way. I did not start out knowing what I was doing um, and just sort of, you know, feeling my way along, like to the next logical step. And I always, uh, as I was working on clutter, I kept thinking about garbage because there's a lot of good crossovers there between the things we keep and then, you know, the, the encouragement to to purge and get rid of it all and like, you know, put it and, and like, oh, well, if I'm getting rid of it, how do I get rid of it? You know, which brings us right to, to garbage. And I've always had a sort of weird fascination with the things that we're done with and are ready to part with and what happens next. Can you give us a little bit of an overview about how this year went? Kind of a little taste, <laughs> taster of this. <laughs> sure. As, as always with my books, uh, I coerce my family into doing the project with me and so what that means is um it's myself and my husband and my two daughters and that's that's the first step is getting them on board and then we jump in cold turkey every time no preparation no research because (laughs) that makes it way more chaotic and hard and you know it it's not always fun to live, but I think it makes for great stories. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot of humor I've realized. And, and, and that's one of the things that draws me to doing these sort of stunt projects that have, you know, it's not real life. You're, you're setting up a, a false situation that, you know, you're going to create a bunch of rules and live differently than yeah. everybody else around you is. And there's something sort of inherently very funny about that to me. There's a yes. lot of, um, there's a lot of humor in, in going and just trying to swim upstream against the normal. This is what everybody does and accepts as normal. And we're going to do something completely different now. So we, we jumped in and began the project. And as people will find out very quickly, uh, if they pick up Year of No Garbage, that year turned out to be 2020, which did not turn out to be the year that anyone expected it to be. And so all of um, the my carefully laid plans that I started to put in place at the beginning of the project, January, February, March rolls around and kaboom, you know, everything that I thought I knew uh, had to be re- reconsidered. Um, and we had to sort of have a family get together, a family meeting and say, can we even keep going? Is this okay? Does it make sense? Um, you know, there's so much going on in the world right now. And is it even like a little, I had this idea that maybe it could be perceived as being a little offensive. Like here I am, you know, washing saran wrap and tying rubber bands back together. And like people are dying, right? So here I am, you know, hyper-focusing on these little tiny bits of, of what we would normally consider to be trash and big things too. 
And, and like, was that okay? And so ultimately we came around to, okay, the, you know, the pandemic and life in general is going to present you with things that are emergencies that are, you know, have to supersede whatever you might've thought you were interested uh, for that moment. But that doesn't mean that these other issues that we were interested in go away. And it doesn't mean that problems cease to be problems. You know, there's, these are tremendous problems. And my, my, anticipation was that this was something environmentalism the great plastic waste crisis climate change all of these issues were going to come roaring back into the common you know communal discussion as soon as we were able to have that as soon as the pandemic began to subside and and i feel like that is what has come to pass absolutely so, yeah that that's been it's been great because i feel like we're ready to have this conversation now and in the meantime you were having this conversation in the book and it was woven together and you are such a skilled writer in writing this kind of memoir which is on the ground what's going on and how am i feeling about it and how is it combining with the rest of this thing that i'm talking and thinking about so constantly so i just want to commend you for doing that and i would love to ask you where exactly does the writing of this, as you're going through, where does it fit into your life? Are you a morning writer? Are you a once a month you write about what happened the month before? How does it work for these kinds of books? I, I've played with it now because I've been lucky enough to do all three projects and sort of try different strategies. And what I have found is that I, I like to be a very regular writer. I like to write every day uh, and I like to write in the morning. I like to have a schedule. Um, and one thing that helped me in particular was that I did not do this for my middle book. I did not do this for Year of No Clutter, uh, but for Sugar I did and for Garbage I did, I keep a blog. And what I found is that for me, that's very helpful. It mm. keeps me on track. It keeps me, uh, it holds me accountable. Like keep, keep, you know, keep to the schedule because people are are waiting to hear what you have to say about this. Even if it's only like, you know, I could imagine hundreds of people, but maybe it's 10 people and that's okay too, right? It still is a sense of accountability. Even one person will get me to do the thing that I absolutely will not do <laughs> on my own. Yeah. Yeah. So the, this, um, it's a, it's a, it's an industry term and readers don't really know it, but writers know it, the, the stunt memoir, which is just my like holy grail <laughs> of memoir. And uh, you're, you're there and AJ Jacobs is in that sphere. I believe you are the best person out there writing stunt memoirs. Um, uh, truly, Woo! I just, I absolutely adore your books and I adore your writing. And, and I think it is because some of, some of the other people I read don't always go right into the, the emotion of it. You know what they you know what I mean? They tell you what happened and maybe lightly how they felt about it but don't actually show that. Is that something you are consciously doing or is that just part of your writing voice? I I think I think that it is just part of my personhood. You know? <laughs> yeah. I'm always about the emotion um and and it also it plays into what I was just discussing with you know writing every day because it helps me to capture, you know, what was I feeling at that very moment, you yeah. know, and looking back can also be helpful, but it's a different processing that you're doing then. And, and I always want to, in fact, there's this argument that we have at the very beginning of the book where we're, 
we've just been to the supermarket and we're just absolutely my whole family we're tearing our hair out because there's like nothing we can buy everything has single-use disposable plastic that we know doesn't get recycled so we can't buy it so we can't buy food and we're hungry and we're angry and we're and i'm literally we walk home we finish having the fight and i pull out my notebook and start writing down <laughs> what the girls were saying because i want it was so perfect and i wanted to grab it and keep it you know because because that's what i feel like the stunt memoir is it's like i get to be this explorer who goes yeah. off to this other planet and explores that planet and then i come back and i'm going to tell you what it was like and there's i there's something so appealing about that to me because people will come to me and say i want to do a year of no sugar and i'm like great good for you but p.s you don't have to you know like read my book and you can just take all the stuff that we learned and feel free to use it and and don't feel like you have to go do this i didn't do it to like you know torture myself and my family that's just a bonus <laughs> and, and you're out there taking the field notes as you go it's so funny I just I just gave my wife um, my next memoir that is about the two years we have spent you know deciding to move to New Zealand and then moving to New Zealand and then making a home here and she just finished it yesterday and I was like she I, I, what do you think she says I loved it and I said okay I definitely need more than that. What do you think? <laughs> and uh, and she says, you just, have, wow, you just have such a better memory than I do. Like, I just can't believe that you remembered all this stuff. And I'm like, I didn't remember anything. I was just writing it down as it <laughs> happened. I would literally remember none of it. If you said right now, write a book about the last two years, three years of your life, it's impossible. You can, I do. I mean, there's sometimes you just have to recreate. Of course. And that's uh, honestly, that's most memoir is we are recreating the thing. Like, oh, when I was 10 years old exactly. and there's some story about, okay, so here's I wasn't my best taking memory. Notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I, I do find carrying a notebook with me everywhere for me is really important for my process. And I also, I'm really good at waking up in the middle of the night and having an idea and like, okay. I will get out of bed and I will go in the other room and turn the light on so I don't wake up my husband. <laughs> and that's, you know, I I make a point to kick my butt out of bed <laughs> because sometimes, sometimes it's crap. I, I look at it the next morning and go, what, what was that? But, but a lot of the time, it's like my brain has been still going and yes. it wakes me up and goes, we solved it, write this down, and, and it'll be just that perfect something, that perfect turn of phrase or or way to describe a thing or or an analogy, you know. And and so I, I feel like trust your brain. You Listen when it. it says it's worth getting up for. <laughs> yes, you're 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 better than I am. I refuse to get up, but I have made a habit of always having the notebook next to the bed with the pen yes. already, like it's you don't I don't have to poke it to make it right, and I make sure the page yes. is blank. So that yes. if I write so you, anywhere you can just on the page, something, yes, like <laughs> maybe it's on the furniture, little, <laughs> exactly. but you got it, whatever it yeah. was, you got it. <laughs> so in terms of the stunt memoir, I, I, I don't think you know this. Um, I don't, would have no way of thinking that you do know this, but um, I had, you know, I've been looking for one for a long time and then it was 2017, end of 2017, when I realized that I was completely creatively burned out. I just had nothing left. 
I was exhausted. I was tired. And I decided to make 2018 um, the year I would refill this creative well. And every month I would silo into a new activity that I would go hard into like meditation or putting myself in a body of water every day or, you know, those kind of things. And of course, as happens, like by okay, month. I, al- I already want to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I, I, and by month three, I <laughs> figured out that I was an alcoholic and got sober. <gasps> okay. Okay. So I, I remember not, reading I, about that, but it went, you know, just it, very tangentially. Yeah. I think it was probably Patreon essays that I was collecting at the time. And, um, <laughs> and it was such a surprise to me that that is actually where the book went. And I actually continued the experiment and fulfilled the 12 months of different things. But in the background, the sobriety was happening. And that's the book I'm, that's the second book I'm putting together right now about how that journey surprised and changed me. And I feel like in, in most of these books and indefinitely in yours, there are these big moments, these big takeaway moments. Can you share one or two of your favorite takeaway surprises from the year of no garbage? Ooh, that's very good question. That's excellent. Um, So one of the things that I came to understand, uh, I think it's so interesting, kind of like uh, analogous to how your brain is still working and you don't know it, or I'm I'm finding my way to and realizing, oh, I'm writing a trilogy. I didn't know that. I, I wish I had given myself a hint, you know? <laughs> Um, I, it, towards the end of Year of No Garbage, one of the things I start to realize is that so m- all these projects have this in common, this idea of slowing down and being more thoughtful. Oh, wow. And I did not know that I was going there. And to suddenly realize, oh, my God, all of these projects, they're all about the same thing. And, and to then understand that part of that is because we live in a culture that does not encourage that at all quite the opposite right like we live in a you know multitasking and how are you doing i'm busy and we oh good good you know (laughs) right right and and god forbid that you slow down and question and think and go well wait i know that this is what we would normally do but what if we didn't? And that can be very uncomfortable. We need to like m- make space for these things so that we can we can change and grow and make better decisions as people, as households, as a community, as as a people. You know, like we can we can stop and think about these things and decide, hey, maybe we don't want to make so much plastic anymore because guess what? It's poisoning the planet and our bodies and it's really bad in every possible conceivable way the more you learn about it the worse it gets and i talk all about it in the book and i don't you know i it's like i that was that was a very concrete surprise was the oh my god i had no idea how Mm. bad it really was like i knew it was bad sure plastic waste crisis litter blah 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 you know um it's gonna be bad but oh Plastic never goes away. Plastic's in all our bodies. Plastic is at the top of Mount Everest and the bottom of the Mariana Trench. It's in the, you know, it's in uh, breast milk. It's in the placenta of unborn babies. I mean, this has gotten wildly out of control. How do we not know this? 
This is, it's just, it's, it's, it gets worse all the time, the more you learn. And, and of course, the real reason is money, which is related to time, right? Big oil, which is plastic because plastic is made with oil. Um, they have limitless resources. They have squadrons of lobbyists. They can push their agenda all day long, every day. And that's why I, I, I was fortunate to be able to make the choice to say, I'm going to investigate this and make it my full-time job. Yeah. And I'm going to come back and tell everybody what I learned, because who has time to do that? Who's going to sit there and email the saran wrap companies repeatedly badgering them into answering my questions about, is this plastic film or not? You know, yeah. <laughs> crazy, you know, who's going to do that? So so there was there was the practical side of I had no idea. Oh, my God. And then there's like the the side of, well, how do we how do we resolve some of these questions? And I, I really I love this idea of slowing down and being more thoughtful, just as a rule, especially because we have to decide that our culture is not set up to encourage it. Right. Especially with, as you say, the lobbyists. That's been one of the biggest things to notice here in New Zealand is that it is a slower pace. We don't have Amazon. There's there's not a one click. If you there are things in bulk everywhere. Plastic is super frowned upon. You are shamed if things are, wow. you know, if things are wrapped in plastic. And of course they they still are, but you can't get plastic in the supermarkets anymore. You can't, I mean, like plastic bags of any kind, even for produce. Um, there's there's nothing. And it's but here, but here's what the way I think about it is that New Zealand is still slow enough and small enough that it is driven by a quite eco-conscious population without the lobbyists. We we have the citizens here have we have two votes. One is for the party of your choice and for your local um, parliament parliamentarian. I can't say that word um, for your city where you live. But then the people who are in parliament make the decisions. There's not all these this different voting. So there's so there's less use for the lobbyists. But then. But in America, how, how, I mean, this is the, obviously the question, how does it get changed when it's, when it's us against the money? Oh, it's, it's against the oil. Right. Yeah. It's overwhelming to try and think about how do we even begin? Um, but what, what I like to look to is we do have some examples of David beating Goliath, you know, uh, uh, more than once. Uh, the ozone, to, for example. The ozone is one, the, one of yes, them, right? Yes, exactly. We fix or the cigarettes. You yeah. know, the admission. We we all, you know, we know cigarettes are bad for us. Can we just admit it for crying out loud? And there was this, you know, playbook that was used by the cigarette industry, big tobacco, that is now being used like word for word by big oil. You know, they see the writing on the wall. They know that people are going to be driving fewer and fewer uh, cars with gasoline in them. And so they say, well, plastic, that's our yeah. fallback. Plastic is plan B. Wow. Um, so how do we, how do we tackle that? That's a huge daunting question. And it's something that I think everybody I talk to about this issue gets like stymied by like, but what do we, you know, like what we did in our year was all about personal responsibility. Right. It's about I'm going to change my life. I'm going to change my tiny little household, which is yep. like one grain of sand on the beach. Right. And so you have to realize that even if everybody goes out and buys a bamboo toothbrush tomorrow, we're still going to have a plastic waste crisis and it's not going to be enough. Like we can do this all day long. Yeah. Right. 
there's still going to be lots of people who either don't care enough, they're not informed enough, they they don't have the ability or the time to to look for different products, to spend the money, you know, extra money to buy something in paper instead of in plastic. You know, there's going to be all kinds of obstacles. So we, we need, we what we really need is legislative change. We, you know, personal responsibility is important. Corporate responsibility would be nice, but I've pretty much given up on that because I've had decades, decades of promises and, and um, pledges and goals. And, you know, it's all greenwashing. They're not doing it. We need to just understand that it's not in their financial best interest to change anything. And so they won't. I kind of can't blame them, right? But we have to go to legislative change. And so fortunately, there are a lot of things happening. And um, like I said, with with the big tobacco, also with lead, you know, lead used to be everywhere in everything. And it was poisoning people and lowering IQ points. And it was a disaster. And it just it took a sort of groundswell of attention. And that's that's what we need. That's what we need. But but we also need to look out and support efforts when we see them. So mm. uh, right now, there's the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act here in the United States. And it was first introduced in 2021. It's now been reintroduced. So it's now called the Act of 2023. It's wending its way through Congress. And we need to like call up and tell our Congress people, I want to support this. And that's that's a big ask, right? I mean, I before I wrote this book, I was not the kind of person who would pick up the phone and call somebody and tell them what I wanted them to vote for. But I've mm-hmm. come to realize how much that call is worth. Mm. It's worth so much. Mm. You know, it's five minutes. But you can do it. And you're not bothering them. The person who answers that phone, because that, that was, oh, I don't want to bother anyone. I don't want to make them mad. I don't want to argue with them. They're not there to argue with you. They're going to write this down on a piece of paper and right. it will have a big impact as if several dozen people or a hundred people called because mm-hmm. you're the one who actually did call. Yeah. So these are the little things that, you know, can have a big impact. And, um, you know, I, I do think that that's ultimately what we need. We need to understand that it's not enough to just change ourselves. It's important, um, but it's not going to be enough. Thank you for saying this and thank you for writing this book because I feel like it is just perfectly timed to be in this conversation, which I see now so many more places than it ever has been. People are talking about it everywhere. And I'm sure they're coming to you. Yes. As <laughs> uh, seriously, <laughs> you're an me. expert on this. <laughs> I, I hope that they are. What does this what does this mean to you though? Like and and really my needs let's bring it back to my needs and you writing stunt <laughs> memoirs. Like, so the, so your year of no's, those three books may be out, but will you ever write another stunt memoir <laughs> for me? Ah, interesting. <laughs> so that, this has been much on my mind. Uh, yeah. and, and I talk about this a lot with my husband. Uh, both our girls are now grown up. Um, and that's another thing that's in the book as a sort of side, you know, the girls, when we first started with Year of No Sugar, they were six and 11. And now they're 18, 23, and they're off living their lives, you know, at university. And, you know, mm-hmm. Greta is an aspiring actress and living in LA. And, you know, they're, it's, it's, a, and now our lives are different. And now Steve and I sit and look at each other and go, it's awful quiet around here. <laughs> Where'd everybody go? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, we talk a lot about like, so what's next? What are you thinking? And he's yeah. like, no more stunt projects. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but I I do think um, that a memoir 
I, I mean, how many memoirs can one person write? You know? <laughs> unlimited number. Does it does, oh, does, okay then? Do well, we worry when case. Mary Carr comes out with a new book? We do not. We 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 want more from you. <laughs> Keep them I definitely coming. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about this whole idea of slowness and yes. following through on that. And I'm not yes. sure what that's gonna mean. But uh, I'm I'm very enamored with this new this idea that I've come to about thoughtfulness that. and slowness. Yes, please. I think that's really echoing another conversation that I'm that I'm seeing everywhere in like the Catherine May books and um and things that I am thinking about reaching midlife and how I've always been 100% hustle and what does it mean when I don't want to hustle as much anymore. And I've been thinking that might be my next kind of thing to explore is um not even slowness. I feel like you you would do slowness on a big, beautiful scale. I'd be like slowness, just trying to keep Rachel from moving. You know that that that's interesting. Um, oh, thank you so much for the writing that you do and for the work that you do. It is such a treat to talk to you about this book. Um, and where can people find? My, is it? It's year of no garbage. There's no my or the in the front, right? It's just year, right. of, no garbage. Just year of no garbage. Year of no garbage. Yep. Yes. And hopefully you can find it in your local bookstore or ask them to order it, please. <laughs> yes, yes, that's the best thing to do. Yes. I love my local bookstore. Uh, I love local bookstores everywhere. Um, but you can, if that's not accessible to you, you can find it other places too. You can find it on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and all the usual suspects. Your local library will have it or they can order it for yeah. you. Yes. yes. And please come and read my blog. It's at eveshop.com. And I'll continue to write about all the crazy stuff I'm up to. Thank you so much for coming back here again. It is just such a treat and a delight to talk to you. Well, it's always fun to talk to you, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks, Eve. Bye. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of How Do You Write? You can reach me on Twitter, Rachel Heron, or at my website, rachelheron.com. You can also support me on Patreon and get essays on living your creative life for as little as a buck an essay at patreon.com slash Rachel, spelled R-A-C-H-A-E-L. And do sign up for my free weekly newsletter of encouragement to writers at rachelheron.com slash write. Now go to your desk and create your own process. Get to writing, my friends. <laughs>